Hey, I do want to um, just wish a happy Mother's Day um, to all of our moms. We hope that you just have a wonderful day. You are amazing. We are so uh, grateful for you. Um, but not just to the moms, really to all of the women that make this world so much better. Um, we would be lost without you. And so I'm thinking of all the women who serve as teachers and mentors and aunties and grandmas and trusted friends and foster moms and adopted moms and moms-to-be. We are just so grateful for you. Um, and this church is packed with some amazing women. And so we are so uh, grateful for you and we support that. Now I have to tell you, I am not a real expert on Mother's Day. I don't know if I know everything, um, but I did come across some information that I think might be helpful to you, especially if you have not got mom anything for Mother's Day uh, yet. I came across a little article and these are top gifts you don't want to get mom on Mother's Day, okay? So these are five things you definitely don't want to get your mom uh, this Mother's Day. I'm just here to help. Uh, Starting with number one is deodorant, right? Right? That's just not what you want to communicate on Mother's Day. Um, Cleaning supplies, right? She may need those, but that's not what we're about. Um, Hair dye, right? She may need it. That's not the issue, though. Don't get it for her on Mother's Day. That is uncool. Um, Toilet paper. Although this time last year, toilet paper would have been a pretty good gift, but those were different times. Um, And then last one is this, um, car parts. That is not a good thing to get your mom. You can fix your car for her, but don't just give her, you know, a bunch of spark plugs and say, go at it, mom. Um, Am I helping anybody here, right? Is that just helpful to you? Um, But it's not just things to not get your mom in terms of gifts, um, but there are also some bad Mother's Day cards that you should just stay away from. Um, Like this one that says, Mom, thanks for always checking up on me. And if you look close, it says, Mom, 24 missed calls. So if your mom calls, call her back. That is not cool to let your mom go to voicemail 24 times. Um, All right, how about this one? Well, I guess, guess this Mother's Day card is late. Looks like someone wasn't raised properly. I know. Put your own character flaws right on mom. That's not a good look. Um, how about this? This is one I would have actually uh, done. Uh, mom, I love you loads. Speaking of loads, can you do my laundry? And then how about this? This is just uh, kind of sums the day up. It says, good moms let you lick the beaters. Great moms turn them off first. <laughs> So there you go, just here to help. You know, I actually read this really cool story about kind of the beginning of Mother's Day. It started officially back in 1907. There was a woman by the name of Anna Jarvis who wanted to not only honor her uh, mom, but her grandmother, both who had passed away at that time. Uh, She especially wanted to honor them for the work that they did uh, at the end or during the Civil War era. So Anna's grandmother was a part of a group of nurses that were committed to treating uh, soldiers on both sides. So whether you're off the North or the South, this group of mostly moms that were serving as nurses said, we are going to care for uh, those American uh, soldiers. And then um, after uh, the war ended, they began these things called Mother's Friendship Days. Mother's Friendship Days. And what those were is it brought families that had been divided by the war, divided by the conflict, it brought them back together to help 
to, to bring reconciliation, to help to bring um, unity. In fact, there's several stories of people that fought, one on the Confederate side, one on the Union side, that would come back together at these Mother's Friendship Days and would end up weeping together and embracing one another. And um, so uh, we're just so grateful for moms that bring that kind of peace. And do we not need you more than ever in our world today? And so moms, do your thing. Thank you for all you do. Help us to, uh, to bring the best out in our lives, our best out in our nation and those kind of things. So, all right. Well, hopefully you grabbed some message notes when you came in and hopefully you have a, a Bible handy. You can open it up on your phone or uh, there's one in the, the, the chair in front of you. Um, because today we are continuing in our study in the book of Romans. We've been studying the book of Romans uh, for a good chunk of the year, and we are now up to Romans chapter 6. And last week, we said that kind of the overarching theme of Romans chapter 6 is not only are we forgiven for our sins, we've talked about that, not, not only are we made right with God through his grace, but kind of by the time you get to chapter 6, Paul makes this case that we are actually dead to sin and alive to Christ. If you are in Christ, he says, you are dead to your old ways and you are alive in Christ. And last week we looked at this beautiful picture that Paul gives us at the start of Romans 6 of that dead to sin, alive to to Christ's life, which is baptism. And we saw a number of people that said, you know what? I am uh, burying that old life. I am raised again to follow after Christ. And so that is a big part of what uh, chapter 6 is all about, dead to sin and alive to Christ. But here's the thing. I totally understand that that all sounds great in a sermon, but it's not quite that easy in real life, is it? Right? I think most of us, if we were honest, would would just be honest and say that overcoming sin is hard. It is difficult stuff to do. And you may come to a passage like we're going to look at today, and you may read these words that said, hey, I'm dead to sin, alive to Christ, but it doesn't feel that way. If anything, it feels like that sin is kind of all alive and raging inside of us. I was thinking about just my own life. I've been a Christian for over uh, 30 years. For the majority of that, I've been a pastor for goodness sakes. And I still look at times at, times at the, the thoughts and the words and the deeds that come out of this sinful nature. And I think, come on, Glenn, you should be past these things. And yet Paul does not waver. Paul is convinced and he makes the point that if you're a follower of Christ, you are dead to sin and you are alive to Christ. And so what we're going to do today is real simple. Um, It's kind of a a heavy subject. We are just going to do our best to pull this passage apart, just look at exactly what the scripture says um, and what it means to be alive in Christ and what it means um, to be dead to sin. Starting with this uh, thing that we see first is because I am dead to sin, I should offer every part of my life to Christ. Every part of my life belongs to Christ. So we're up to verse 11 in Romans chapter 6. Let's take a look at it here. I'm reading today from the New Living Translation, um, and it goes like this. It says, so you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourself completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. 
So as I said, Paul says, uh, for the person that's alive to Christ, we are to offer every part of our life to him. Another way to say that is when we're alive in Christ, we can learn to resist holding on to either those secret kind of hidden sins or those besetting sins. And I'll kind of define that here in just a little bit. But one thing you need to know that when we talk about sin, the Bible is actually very consistent from the beginning to end um, on on most things, but the Bible is very consistent um, on what it says about sin. And it's consistent with this message. That sin is a big deal. Not only does it keep us separated from God, but it keeps us from really experiencing the fullness of life that Christ has for us. He came to give us abundant life, and we have these things that keep us away from that. And so when we in our life and we see in our culture kind of take this attitude that sin is, is no big deal, because after all, um, you know, at least it's not as bad as that guy over there, or, you know, it's something that I could deal with, or, or whatever it is. Um, when we take that attitude, we're really missing the point of what the Bible says um, about sin. In fact, just look back at verses 12 and 13. There's three commands right in a row about sin, starting with this, three commands. The first one is don't let sin control you. Don't let it control your life says, don't give in to sinful desires. And then it says the third command, don't let any part of your body become an instrument of sin. And again, that idea is that I'm going to not offer even parts of my body um, to sin, but I'm going to offer everything to Christ. And and that reminds me of an old story that preachers love to tell sometimes, uh, dates back to the 15th century, uh, to Ivan the Great. When Ivan the Great was the czar of Russia, um, he led one of the fiercest uh, uh, armies of that time. They were known to invade and capture uh, their their neighbors um, like that. But when it came time for Ivan uh, the Great to marry, um, apparently he fell in love with the daughter of the Queen of Greece. And so he falls in love with this Greek princess. Uh, They're They're ready to get married, but the king of Greece says, before you can marry my daughter, you have to be baptized into the Greek church. So the story goes that Ivan and 500 of his fiercest soldiers march from Russia down uh, to, to Greece. They literally march straight into the Mediterranean Sea, and 500 of them all at once with 500 priests are getting ready to get baptized into the church. But just before it happens, it says that all of these soldiers reached over, grabbed their sword, held it up over their arms, and were baptized with their fighting arm and their sword raised above their head as a way of saying, well, we're offering some of ourselves to Christ, but there are some of our parts that we are going to hold on to. Now, that may be an old preacher's story, but to me, it proves a powerful point because it represents the way that a lot of us treat our Christian life, right? Which is that I'm willing to surrender parts of my life, but those things that are closest to me, those things that that seem to bring me the most comfort or pleasure or whatever it is, those are the things that I want to hold on to the tightest, And so we say things like, I can just maintain a a secret life of lust and pornography. Or we say, you know what, I'm going to hold on to my temper or kind of those harsh and and cutting words because, you know, that's just the way I am. That's just my personality. Or we say, greed is okay because, you know, it's just the American way, right? I'm just trying to keep up with my neighbors and so I can be greedy and I can resist caring for those that are in need. 
Or we can say, I'm going to persist in my racist or judgmental attitudes, uh, intolerance towards people that are, are different than me because, well, that's just the way I was raised. And yet that's not what the Bible says about sin. If you look just one more time at verse 13, it says, don't let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourself completely to God. And that means the things that live and grow in the deepest, darkest corners of our hearts and our minds need to be drug into the light and put to death once and for all. Because our temptation is to keep those things on, on life support, right? We, we push them aside, but we want to just keep them on life support so we can run back to them when we need that little bit of comfort when we need that little bit of pleasure, when we need that little bit of control. Even though we know when we step back and think about it, they don't lead us, these things don't lead us to the life that God has for us. And still, instead, it leads us to heartache and spiritual and emotional and relational and sometimes even physical death. So there's this old um, description in the the King James Version. It's kind of an old-fashioned way to describe some of these sins. And it was the idea of a besetting sin. And a besetting sin actually goes back to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. In the King James, it says this, Lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. The besetting sins are those things that are kind of our signature sins. This is the one that I know and most of us hopefully can identify what that is. Those are the things that I I'm going to struggle with. Uh, I looked at some de- definitions of besetting sins. It's like the, the pet sin or the stubborn, persistent, or deeply rooted sin. It's one by which we are captured, one which we have a weakness toward. But the truth is, whatever we feed, whatever we're feeding in our life, again, whether it's lust or greed or envy or worry, the things that we feed are the things that are going to grow. And the Bible says this, you are dead to sin, but you are alive to Christ. That's why I love the advice. This is a great memory verse. This is one that I've thought of many, many times in my life. Um, From 2 Timothy uh, 2.22, Paul writes to young Timothy and he says this. He says, Timothy, you got to flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. And the deal is, we know that sin chases after us, and so we must flee from it. Put those things to death. So that's the first thing. You got to offer all of yourself uh, to Christ. A second thing that we see in this passage is just, we're kind of working our way through it is I've got to stop making excuses for why I keep sinning, right? We all have our excuses of why I do this and why I do that. And really uh, one of the things it teaches us is we've just got to stop making those excuses. So if you look at verse 15, it says this, it says, well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean that we can go on sinning? Paul says, of course not. You actually have basically the same thing in verse one, where it says this, it says, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? The answer is no, of course not. You, you see, the gospel message of God's grace is an amazing thing. It is wonderful, and it is a radical message. This idea that though I am a sinner and though I deserve punishment, and instead God gives me grace and God gives me love and compassion, 
I mean, where do you get that, right? That is a radical and a very different and a powerful life-changing thing. In fact, right here in Romans 6, in our passage, we, we hear, see one of the kind of best definitions of it. Romans 6, 23 says this. It says, the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And you say, so let me get this straight. What I deserve is death, and what I get is eternal life. That is God's grace, and that is amazing. The problem is, we all know people, and if we're honest, most of, in ha- most of, them ha- most of us have been that person that says, well, if God's going to forgive me anyways, why does it matter? Right? If God's going to forgive me, and if God's grace is so amazing, why shouldn't I just let God's grace keep coming on me? And we use it as an excuse to, uh, to, to um, just continue on in those behaviors. And Paul says, no, you've got to make, stop making excuses. That's not the way it should be. Right? Instead, Romans actually teaches us what we're supposed to do with God's grace. Romans 2 says this, The kindness of God is meant to lead us not to more sin, but the kindness of God means to lead us to repentance. So when we truly get it, when we say, um, you know, let's just say someone gives you a, a, a very kind gift. Maybe there's this temptation in the worst part of you when a person gives you a gift to think, how can I manipulate that person to get them to give me another gift? That's the worst right? Our response should be when someone gives you a gift is appreciation and love and relationship. And the same way when we say, because God's forgiven me, I might as well just keep on sinning, shows that we're actually missing the point of God's forgiveness all along. So um, I can resist. I can resist those selfish justifications for why my sin is okay. And we've just got to get honest with ourselves and say, I'm going to stop making excuses for why my sin is okay. Uh, Because if we're honest, we know that God calls us to leave behind those old dead ways uh, and to leave them. But we think to ourselves, well, I deserve it, right? Anyone ever think like that? Well, man, I've had had a hard day and I deserve to, you know, have those drinks at the end of the day. Or, you know, man, things have been tough at home. And so, you know, I deserve to send that flirty text to that guy from work or that flirty text to that girl from work and to, to not pursue the relationships that, that, that God has for you. Not those dangerous relationships, but the relationships that God has for you. Or I think, man, my, my day's been hard and, you know, I just deserve to, you know, veg out and to fill my mind with a bunch of junk or to pour over pornography or whatever it is. We make those kind of excuses. And Paul says, no, enough. You can't do that. The point is we justify our sins and, and we say that it's not that big of a deal um, and God is going to forgive me anyways. And so we just keep those sins around. And it reminds me of, you, you've heard a story like this through the years. There's different stories you hear of, of a, a guy who decides that he's going to keep a, a lion or a cougar or something like that as a pet. And so he, he says, I'm going to keep this lion as a pet. And he names his pet lion Fluffy and things are going great until one day Fluffy does what, you know, Fluffy's going to do. And, and snaps and kind of tears this guy up. And then the story is always like, oh, wow, it's such a tragedy. We didn't see that coming. He was such a, you know, loving pet. But the reality is Fluffy is a dangerous predator. Fluffy was not meant to be kept as a pet. You can't domesticate Fluffy and you can't keep those sins around as a pet that I'm going to run back to. Like I'm going to be in control of those things. We have to learn to resist those justifications. Uh, I love what um, First Peter says about this. It says, stay alert. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil, who does what? 
prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I love what John Owens, the 17th century um, uh, theologian and Puritan says this. He says, you must be killing sin or it will be killing you. Your enemy, the devil, is relentless and he will not let up. So unless you are killing sin, it will be killing you. So I have to stop the excuses for why I keep on sinning. And then the third thing that we want to look at from this passage is I must learn to live as a servant of Christ and not as a slave to sin. So we're up to verse 16 now. Verse 16 says this, don't you realize that you, became, you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God, once you were slaves to sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Now you are free from the slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. You guys all know that old Bob Dylan song, right? Bob Dylan, what is he saying? He says, you're going to serve somebody. He says, it may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but all of us are serving somebody. And so we have to learn to live as a servant to Christ rather than a slave to our sin. Hey, before we look at this a little bit more, just a little side note here, because a lot of times when we come to this language that we find a few places in the Bible on slavery in particular, that can be kind of a, a weird one for, for a lot of us. You, you know, you think about slavery, you think about its horrible place in the history of the world, you think about its horrible place in the history uh, of our nation. And so we think, well, what is Paul, you know, saying slavery is okay? That's not what Paul is doing. Paul is not arguing uh, for uh, slavery in any way. Um, actually, the New Testament is way ahead of its time because though slavery was kind of the economic system really for the entire Roman world at that time, if you look at what the Bible says about um, uh, about whether you're a slave or free, that you're a brother in Christ, or that it says to a master to treat your uh, servants with respect and with dignity. Again, that was kind of way ahead of its time. And here Paul is not arguing for slavery as much as he's just using an example that everybody would get, right? He's just using a common example that everybody would understand. Because if you were a slave, you knew that you belonged to that master. You were not free. You belonged to it, to it. And he says, your old master was sin, but now you belong to Christ. And so you have to learn to resist serving my old and destructive behaviors. There's a, a Bible commentary um, from N.T. Wright, and he writes about this. And I just want to read to you um, what he says, because I think this is kind of a, a good illustration. It was helpful to me. N.T. Wright says this. He says, imagine that you're renting a home, right? So you're renting a home and the landlord is a bully. He is a terrible tyrant. He is mean, he is violent, he is dishonest. He overcharges you for rent and then barges in and destroys your stuff if you don't give in to his demands. It is a terrible situation, but it is the only place that you know to live. And so you just uh, so you just get used to it, living in you know, that kind of terrible environment. But then... But then, to your relief, one day you find somewhere else to live. Someone pays off the remaining rent, so you are free to leave, and you can settle in to your new home, which is incredible and full of peace and joy. But to your horror, a few days later, the old landlord shows up at your door and barges into the new house. He's angry and demands more money. The old habit within you returns and, and you are tempted to pay what he demands just to get him to leave. But you know 
you are not his tenant anymore. You've seen the paperwork. That final bill was paid. You owe him nothing. And so trembling, you get up and you tell him to leave. He has not any more claim over you. And as children of God, we have a new master. And our master is not sin. Our master is not the devil. Our master is the Lord. And we are his children. So as I said, as we talk about this, it's easy on a Sunday morning, right? Because you're sitting in church and, and maybe you've even heard kind of messages like this before that you know, challenge you to get beyond those sins and, and you know the struggle to do that. Um, and so I want to not only just give you kind of this theological foundation, but I want us to hear just some real practical um, steps, some things that, that you could do today, this week, as we work to kind of overcome some of those stubborn um, sins. And so I invited my friend Steve Plath um, to come on up. If you don't know, Steve is the director of men's ministry and recovery ministry here at the church. Um, and especially as he's uh, been a, just a great leader for Celebrate Recovery, um, has got just some great experience in this. And so Steve, thanks so much for sharing some practical stuff. Appreciate Thank you, Glenn. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, Glenn, uh, Glenn asked me earlier in the week to come up and talk a little bit about this. Um, I'm highly active in recovery, and uh, I was honored to be a part of this, and, and uh, I want to talk a little bit about some of the steps that I've acquired in recovery that have helped, and I also need to share from a real honest point in my life of some struggles that happened during this week, because there's a part of me that likes to think that I've overcome this, and I have, like he talks about, there's truth. But then there's that other side of me that still lives, and so I want to break this down. So a couple steps. The first step that I have to do is I have to admit, I have to admit it, that I have a problem with sin. There's that stubborn sin in my life. There's a bunch of it, but I only have a few minutes to talk about it, so I picked, uh, I picked one in particular that showed itself this week, right? And I'll talk about that in a second. But I have to admit it. I can't lie about it. i got to stop justifying it or minimalizing it. The principle of this is honesty. And surrender is the way. Fairness and straightforwardness of conduct, adherence to the facts. That's what I have to surrender myself to, to God's plan and will in this area. The scripture in Romans 7.18 says, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that it is that it is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. I can't pull it off, right? I can't do it. The second step talks about I have to do this inventory piece. I have to look at me and my part. See, it's real easy for me to take inventory of other people when they wrong me, right? But I always have a part in that. And if I deny that part, it's, it, it, it affords me the opportunity to take someone else's spiritual or sinful pulse while ignoring my own. The principle behind this is courage. Courage talks about the firmness of mind and the will in the face of extreme difficulty mental or moral strength to withstand fear. Lamentations 3.40 says, let us examine our ways and test them and let us return to the Lord. The questions I ask myself while I do these types of things in this step is, where was I prideful? Where was I selfish or self-seeking? Where was I fearful or unkind? Where did I have the need to be right instead of becoming alongside of other people? The third step is that I need to admit to God, to myself, and someone else when I do these things. Historically, in the past, before I got into recovery, I could somewhat do that. It would be God and myself, 
And then I would go back to that minimalization or justification. And I would manipulate it so that I felt better about it so I could go out and continue to do it. Today, the third part of it is, is after having relationship with men in this community and in this church where I can actually tell on myself. I can say where I've made mistakes. I can own it. The shame and guilt of those things. I can lay them down. I can surrender that as well. Iron sharpens iron, the Bible, Bible says, and there's friction in that at times. It's not easy, but it sure does help. Right? I get to tell on myself. The, the principle of this is integrity. It says the quality or state of being completed or undivided of soundness. The scripture is James 5.16. It says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Lastly, the step is uh, of making direct amends where I've done wrong and when I've hurt people and myself. The principle behind this is discipline, and discipline says training that corrects, it molds, and it perfects. The scripture behind that is Matthew 6, verse 12, when Jesus tells us about the Lord's Prayer, he says, And forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. So what that means is, I'm going to be forgiven the way that I forgive people. The way that I forgive myself. The way that I forgive, period. Now here's where my stubborn sin showed up this week. It was in the form or a narrative of the email, I call it, right? I got an email this week. And there was a little back and forth going on. And then then, uh, the final one that came to me was just this absolute slam at the bottom. It was just attacking my character. And it really made me angry. And so the stubborn uh, sin that I thought I'd been through, that actually I know I'm not, I still have it, it shows up, is anger. I was very upset. I mean, incredibly upset. I was unspiritually upset, right? And so I did what I just talked about. I first admitted it. I can't deny it. This is happening in my life, right? I did some inventory work. Where was I wrong? Because I can tell you that that email was the last one. There was one before what I had taken, you know, my title, if you will, and moved it into what I wanted it to be. It was my self-will. I have to own that. Thirdly, I told on myself, I went to Pastor Glenn and many others as a sounding board so that they can help me reveal the blind spots that still exist in my life today so that I can get clear of that, right? And forthcoming, what will happen is I will make direct amends to this guy, this process of forgiveness, because I want to be forgiven, because I'm not only am I angry at this guy, but the truth is, when I reflect upon all of this this past week, what happens is, what he wrote at the very bottom of that email that so affected me and ruined me is something that I have been guilty of doing myself 10,000 times, if not more, throughout my life. It's the unfinished business in me. I've seen this guy like three times in the last three years and been on dozens of phone calls, right? But it's really about me. So I'm praying for this guy. I'm praying for God. The process of working through this stubborn sin, this helps. This morning as I woke up and started praying and, and, and working through this, I went through my emails and Oswald Chambers had something awesome to say. And this is God's perfect timing in this, and I'd like to read it and close with this. It says, a person's own idea of God and his attributes may actually be used to justify and rationalize my deliberate neglect on my duty. 
Jonah tried to excuse his disobedience by saying to God, I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. I too may have the right idea of God and his attributes, but that may be the very reason why I do not do my duty. Our own idealistic principles may actually lull us into ruin. I don't want that today for me. So I ask God to come in and do the things that he can do. And, for, and, and that's the forgiveness that was modeled. And I have to admit that stuff, so thank you. Yeah, you bet, Steve. Thank you so much for sharing those things. Man, I love to hear those practical steps. Um, and it starts, um, really, yeah, let's appreciate Steve. Um, it starts with just being honest. It starts with being real. I'm so thankful to be a part of a community of faith um, that is saying sin's not okay. We want to move past this stuff. And so it's hard, it's difficult, but we are going to do it um, together. Um, so we're going to begin to, to move towards the close of our service, um, but we're going to have a couple songs. And during this, uh, these couple songs, there's going to be a chance for us to um, reflect in kind of an action step, if you will. Um, in the, the chair in front of you, the seat pocket in front of you, there's a little card, just a little card like this that says, uh, no longer a slave to dot, 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 with a place to to write that in. And if you were here a few weeks ago, we did prayer requests and people brought prayer requests and were able to put them on the wall. And, and I should tell you that both the church staff and our prayer team have been praying for those things. It's been such a privilege to, to read those things and think about them over and over again. Um, these cards are going to be different. These cards, we invite you to just between you and the Lord, put that in the basket and we're going to throw them away. This is not who we are anymore. This is just a step of us saying, God, I confess my stuff to you. Step one is get real with God get honest with myself. And here's the good news. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we're going to stand and sing together. I believe we're also going to have some folks from our prayer team um, that are here. If you would like someone to pray with you, um, we'd be honored to do that. They should be um, kind of down the sides there. Um, but if, you know, if, if there's something that, that's on your heart, I'd encourage you just write that out. You come up, that's between you and the Lord. Um, put that in there as we worship together and we declare that we are not slaves to sin anymore, but we are servants of Christ and children of God. So God, I thank you so much for the power of your grace. We thank you, Lord, for this message that though it is not easy, it is true and it brings life and healing and goodness and future. And so I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters as we do that inventory that Steve even talked about. Lord, we begin to tell on ourselves. We begin to say, Lord, we bring ourselves to you. We are no longer slaves to these things. We want to live for you. I pray for my brothers and sisters and myself, the struggles that are going on even as we think about these things because we are yours. We are your children and we commit it to you in Christ's name. Amen.